Today's Skim from the Couch is presented by John Hancock. We are partnering with them to help you face the future. More on that later, but for now, let's get into the episode. I was like, screw it. It's like all coming apart and I may as well do it all at once. And some people, I suppose, would be kind of afraid to let go of their business and their marriage, the whole thing to fall apart. I (laughs) guess I'm a little crazy. (laughs) I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? So this week, we have a special live recording. Today, we are coming to you live from the Misha Nunu pop-up store in New York. Misha is the founder and creative director of the women's wear company that's upending the way the fashion industry functions. Her namesake brand was one of the first to introduce a fashion line exclusively via social media, utilizing both Instagram and Snapchat as venues for her fashion shows. And her pop-up boutiques, which we are sitting in right now, are known for for being an experience that encompasses much more than just fashion. While she is certainly recognized for her design talent, she's also made waves as a business innovator with her made-to-order business model, making it a positive change towards sustainability in an industry that is not known quite for being sustainable. Misha has been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, as well as Crane's New York business 40 Under 40. Also, we are very happy to call Misha uh, a friend and someone that we have turned to at many points in the business and excited to sit here with you in your beautiful, gorgeous pop-up. Thank you. Well, likewise, I'm very excited to be here. A little nervous about what you're going to ask me, but... <laughs> oh, wait, I didn't do the final part. Okay, so we are so excited to chat with you, Misha. <laughs> Normally, we would be welcoming you to our couch, but we are thrilled to be here in your beautiful shop. Let's get into it. Fun. Perfect. Can't this wait. This is so exciting. Okay, let's do it. Misha, skim your resume for us. Um, so I went to business school. Actually, I didn't do the traditional thing of going to design school. So that was something that was a little bit different from the beginning. I went to business school in London and in Paris. After that, I moved to New York. I always knew I wanted to live in New York City, really drawn to the energy here. And I got a job. Um, this was about 10 years ago. So it was kind of high to the recession. Got any job that I possibly could. I got a job at a very small tailoring atelier in the garment district that still produced in the garment district, which is kind of unfortunately rare now. Learned about production. I really apprenticed on the job, so kind of learned soup to nuts how to make a garment. And then haphazardly and happily started my own business in the sense that I created eight garments, eight jackets and coats. And I used to wear those pieces around for like the first six months that I had the samples. Someone was sitting next to me uh, in a coffee shop, a brunch spot, called Prune on the Lower East Side. And she said, oh my God, I love your jacket. Where's it from? And I said, oh, actually I made it. And she happened to be one of the head buyers at Intermix. Five days later, I walked out of their head offices with a purchase order for six of the eight styles that I'd made that I had to produce within, you know, probably less than 12 weeks. And the PO was for around $150,000. So I didn't have a business. I wasn't incorporated. And somehow I had to kind of think about things a little bit backwards. And then you kind of skimmed my resume from there and starting my own business and 
I had a, a traditional wholesale business for five years, and then three years ago, I went direct to consumer. Completely changed everything that we've done. We produce everything on demand now. We're a sustainable fashion business in our manufacturing practices, and we're working in every which way possible to look at the supply chain and how we can be sustainable, whether that's from our packaging, which now is completely plastic-free, to also, you know, taking out any unnatural fibers from our collection, which is a goal for 2020. So it's really kind of looking at the whole business comprehensively and the whole goal of what I've always looked to do has been to empower women. So those are my real passions and purposes. We're going to unpack all of this. Okay. So first of all, what is not on your LinkedIn or what didn't you skim for us that we should know about you? I'm a huge dog lover. Somebody said to me the other day, if you didn't do what you do today, what would you want to do? And I said, uh, well, the obvious things would be something like, you know, I would have been like a dog walker, a chef, or because I love to cook too, a set designer because I love like interior design. But actually the thing that I would have really loved to do would have been to be a pilot. I think there's such an immense sense of freedom in the idea of flying a plane. Uh, so I would have loved to have learned how to fly planes or helicopters. I probably still can, I suppose. Life is long. Have you ever flown one? No. Okay. Bucket list. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. So before we kind of get into your routine and what your day-to-day looks like, I want to understand when you go into your journey and you talk about, you know, from business school to here, to here, to here, it feels very methodical and thought out. Did you know you wanted to go into fashion? Yeah. From when I was about 14 years old, it was very clear to me that I wanted to create something myself within the fashion space. And it's interesting because I was talking to somebody about, you know, living out your dreams and how you live out your dreams, how you make things possible. And you two know this because you've created your own business and you don't necessarily know what the end goal looks like, but you start somewhere and then it starts to crystallize as you go along on your journey and your path. And I uh, definitely knew that I wanted to carve out something of my own within the fashion space. And I knew that from about 14 years old and I feel very lucky to have known that early on in my career, early on in my life. And that really guided me because when I was about 17 and applying to universities, I wanted to go to art school or design school. And my parents, my dad specifically, he said to me, you know, I really think that you should think about business school because if you're going to have your own business one day, if that's your dream, then, you know, you should probably learn how to run something. So it sounds methodical now, but it really hasn't been. And it's been a very meandering journey over the past 10 years. I always think it's so interesting because on the one hand, it's a blessing to know what you wanted to do that early. Did it ever feel like a burden? Did you feel like you got the chance to explore? That's a good question, actually, like the meandering aspect. No, but I'm not that kind of person. I'm so type A that people have always said to me, plant your feet and, you know, feel your toes like roots in the ground and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, mm. you do that. I'm flying the <laughs> yeah, plane about right. you. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, I think everything that I've always done has been a search for freedom. And if I think about it in that way, I grew up as an only child, the only daughter of an Iraqi Jewish businessman born in Bahrain in the 1980s. And I did not see that many opportunities for women around me. You know, my mum actually wasn't a professional, wasn't a career woman at all. She was an incredible mum and she stayed at home with me. But she always ingrained in me that I could do whatever it was that I wanted to do. So what was that? I think that that's what I'm really passionate about. And that's why I say that the real manifest of this business and the purpose of this business is to empower women to do whatever it is that they want to do. And, you know, I don't see myself really as being a fashion label. 
I don't. I see myself as being a uniform that equips women to go on their daily lives and their journeys. Why did you, when you went to business school, and I, I understand that your dad's advice of, you know, if you're going to run your own business, like get the skill set. But did you ever have a moment of like, well, I've never been formally trained to design, so I need that training too? I think now, and it's come so full circle, I think actually what you see here is that I really look at design from the lens of a stylist. And I think that growing up, I always enjoyed putting outfits together and thinking about how someone presented themselves. And I think that when you think of fashion and as I was growing up, Alexander McQueen, for example, especially in the UK, was such an icon. And looking at that level of fashion craftsmanship design, I was blown away by it. But that wasn't actually what I really wanted to create myself. And I think that what has become apparent in what I do is that what we create here are really the tools that um, kind of allow you to live your life day to day. And it's a versatile wardrobe that you can interchange. Um, it's not the frilly, fussy, fancy stuff. I mean, I have so much appreciation for those designers who create one of a kind, unique pieces. Valentino is extraordinary as a house, but that's not what I was ever really that passionate about, either wearing or creating. When you were growing up, you talk about your parents and you talk about growing up in Bahrain. Who did you look up to? Such an interesting question. I think I probably looked up to my mum because she was always very well put together and allowed me a great deal of freedom. My dad didn't. And I mean, I think that when I would watch movies and things like that, I looked at the likes of Audrey Hepburn and Grace Kelly and people who were really iconic. But I didn't have one role model as I was growing up. Did you think about actually wanting to run the business side of things? Was that part of the aspiration? No, definitely not. And and I don't think that you, and I'm sure you guys probably feel the same way. You have no idea what running the business side no, of things no, no, means. No. You're like, oh, I'm going to make something and then you're like oh my god the strings attached to creating something and then employing people and then keeping them in employ in business and all of that it's really difficult so even ha had i known i definitely wouldn't probably wouldn't have done it and i'm grateful for that actually but i don't think any of us really know what it takes before we get into it So as we've mentioned, we're partnering with John Hancock for our Face the Future series. I don't think they paid for that, that sound effect. Like, <laughs> you're welcome, John Hancock. Um, it's all about helping skimmers take the guesswork out of their biggest money moves, like buying your first home, growing your family, or thinking about retirement. That sounds lovely. One day. It got us thinking about the kinds of money decisions we were making as we were trying to grow the skim. And there are many, many, many decisions that we were trying to make and trying to avoid while we've been growing the business. One question we get asked a lot all the time is, when did you start paying yourself? When you're starting a business, thinking about when do you take a salary from that, where does that money go first? We get that big financial decisions are hard to navigate. We have been there. We are also going through it. And we break them down all on our Face the Future page. Check it out at theskim.com slash future. Do you want to do a sound effect? future. <laughs> you can also head over to John Hancock to speak with a financial planner who can help you navigate the future, whatever that looks like for you. 
So I think that's a good transition to talk about the business model. Talk to us about what you were seeing in the fashion industry that prompted you to do something different. And I think a lot of the corollary that we see is we came of age loving media and loving news and also knowing that it couldn't continue to exist in the current form. Mm -hmm. The business model wasn't going to work. They weren't reaching new audiences and there were inherent problems in an industry that we loved. And I think it seems like you saw the same writing on the wall for an industry that you loved. Yeah. So I did it in the traditional way for about five years. And that was probably my biggest mistake. I mean, if I'm going to be quite controversial, those five years that many people would have thought that I was building credibility and doing things with Vogue magazine or, you know, the CFDA and things like that. I now look at them as great experiences, but it was never the path that I was meant to take. It was in doing those things that made me realize that the model was so broken. And I think I've been doing it for almost four years now, but direct to consumer and, you know, shows through Instagram and things like that. But I think that now the industry is starting to pay attention and catch up. For those that are listening or in the audience today that aren't in the retail industry, when you say the model is so broken, can you just explain what you mean by that? I mean, I think that it's been pretty well publicized, for example, this past week that Barney's is going out of business. And it's like the third or fourth time that they have filed for chapter 11. And people are like, God, that's so sad. Barney's is an icon. And I'm like, who on earth gets four chances at being rescued from bankruptcy? How many businesses get to be bailed out and bailed out like for the sake of nostalgia? Like, are you kidding me? It's just mind blowing to me. If you can't run a business, then you don't deserve to be in business anymore. So I think it's very clear that either the buyers weren't listening to their customers. You know, Nordstrom is still in business and I'm not sure if it's a privately owned business still, but they have really strong customer loyalty from what I understand. And there must be something that they do, uh, whether it's, you know, a certain level of CRM or whatever that, that really works and resonates with the customer. I think ultimately we live in a day and age where the customer, and we know this because we are the client ourselves, you want to be heard and you have a million different options. And we see that with social media all the time. People ask us for certain things, like, and we ask them for certain things. You know, we'll say, we're going to be launching a husband shirt in a new color. What do you guys think it is and what do you guys want it to be? And you'll get all of this feedback from people who are really engaged and who happen to love a particular product of yours. I think that fashion used to be and has been built upon a model that is so exclusive. And we live in a day and age where you can no longer behave in that way if you want to really thrive. And I think you probably saw that with media as well. It's like people were telling a certain side of a story and the truth comes out when suddenly everybody has a phone and a video camera. So I think, you know, certainly in our own story and journey with the skim, we, we definitely felt like what's happening in the path everyone is on is not going to work not let alone not 10 years from now, but like two years from now. And we felt that urge to, to make that change. And there were a lot of people who said, what are you doing? You have a great job. This is not a good idea. Those people might've been related to us, but we got a lot of pushback yeah. of, you know, you don't have this experience or bring in people who know what they're doing. And so I want you to kind of break down the moment for us as you started to think like, you know, hey, I'm achieving a lot of success. I mean, most designers would die to be acknowledged by CFDA and in Vogue. I mean, we knew your label well before this kind of resurgence of it. Why did you walk away from that success? What made you think about, okay, I have to do this differently? What was the trigger for you? 
you know, Zach Posen just went out of business, right? We all heard about that as well on Friday, which is so sad. We'd all think, wow, that's real success. And then you hear his labels closing. The truth is just because you're lauded and applauded by people in the press or the media, as you know so well, that luck can turn on a dime. You have a bad season and the business felt too precarious to me to be completely honest. And what was happening was that we had grown to a certain extent. And then because we were reliant on a wholesale business model, we had major department stores and because their business was precarious, we as little fish to them were, you know, they would just cut our buy or one season they'd be like, oh, you know what, this season actually we're gonna buy you on consignment. So for anybody that knows what that is, that's sale or return. So they're actually not paying for anything upfront. So you have to front all of these costs. Your cash flow is a mess. It's a nightmare to try to manage. Do you have outside investment capital? So not until I went direct to consumer, it was self-funded up until that point. And it was so hand to mouth day to day. And I just honestly felt like I had to call the whole thing out and be transparent because I am a deeply, deeply honest and direct person. And I was like, guys, it's just not true. Like you may say this coat is the coat of the season, blah, 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 and such and such celebrities wearing it, but like we can barely even survive. And nobody cared about that. You know, you have to be really brave. I read something somewhere today about how courage is about, you know, feeling the fear and basically doing it anyway. And I was really scared, but I felt like I had nothing to lose. So talk about that first step in the transition. I think there was a lot going on in your life. Yes. There was a lot that you had to look at in fresh eyes and really recenter yourself. And I think one of the questions we get a lot is, when is it a good time to do something different? When you can't take it anymore. That's it. I was personally, you know, I had been married and I was going through a divorce. And at the same time, you can't look at one side of your life and not look at the other. And of course, when you have your own business, this is your life day to day. And um, I was like, screw it. It's like all coming apart and I may as well do it all at once. And some people, I suppose, would be kind of afraid to let go of their business and their marriage, the whole thing to fall apart. I (laughs) guess I'm a little crazy, (laughs) but um, I couldn't be dishonest about it. I was like, none of this is making me happy. And if you are going to, again, I, the truth is that this business is run purely from my heart and it's all about the purpose. And I think that everybody that works in the business believes in what we do and the customers come because of that too. Do you feel like you changed or had to change your definition of success? Uh, I think that's such a moving target all the time. Uh, Maybe this is a personal thing. Maybe it's a female thing. I don't know what it is. I know that men definitely view it slightly differently, but if success were just dollar and cents, I would be in a very different place to where I am today. And I probably wouldn't have made some of the decisions that I made at the times that I made them, et cetera, because we had a wholesale business that was X amount and we went to zero and we closed everything in order to then, you know, reappropriate. So I want to, I want to just kind of like pause at this. So you're, you're like, let's just flow everything up at once. Right. Literally, did you let go of your team? Like what happened? Let go of every single member of my team. What? Every single one. In order to really change the model, I had to do everything completely differently. And it was scary, but it just just wasn't working. 
it was me and then I brought on a president and then we together hired a team and then I went out and fundraised and I could close everything because we were self-funded. I didn't really have anybody else. You know, we talk about kind of the realities of how hard it is to do this. Like you let everyone go. That's a horrible experience on both sides. Yeah. Your personal life is like kind of falling apart or things are happening. Yeah. When you go home and you're with your (laughs) adorable dog, were you just like, what the F am I doing? I'm not going to lie. I spent a lot of nights on my floor in my living room, crying my eyes out solo with my dog. It was not a happy time. It really wasn't. It was miserable for a good, I would say a good almost 12 months. So some people like fall apart and are like, I am going back home. I am going on a trip or I'm just going to spend all day in therapy. Like whatever you do, you. Therapy was a big part of it. Yeah. But how did you, (laughs) I mean, you used that time and you like went deep and then something really productive came out of it. Walk us through just sort of that internal process. Well, I have to say like, if you strip everything away, whatever you're left with is the reality and whatever you're left with is probably going to be the good stuff. So if you start from that place of like the embers of something really interesting, you can be your most creative. And I had lived a life in my past life that was exceptionally social. We used to go to, you know, a cocktail for this or this for that or whatever. You take all of that stuff that really is unimportant out of the equation and suddenly you've got all this time to think about what is really important and to create your next chapter in the way that you want to create it. And I didn't have anybody else that was along for the ride with me. So no employees that were dependent on me anymore. No husband that, you know, was going to change the course of how I wanted things to go. I was completely in charge. And yes, that's scary, but it's so deeply empowering to know that only you are responsible for you and your little dog. And that's it. Did you ever second guess it when you were on the floor crying? A hundred percent personally and professionally, I was like, I have made the biggest mistake in my life. And that is where you have great friends who tell you that you haven't made the biggest mistake of your life. And personally, it's the right decision. And you have few great mentors who understand the vision that you have. And at the same time, of course, I was trying to fundraise and that was soul destroying It's not fun. You know, it's so difficult. Here I was a woman trying to pitch to mainly men about a very forward thinking fashion concept. And they're all like, oh, I'm going to go home and ask my wife. And I'm like, oh, no. Did you have to think about designing differently? Totally. Because there were so few of us, I had to think about designing differently and in a way that was sustainable for me because I was trying to get this business off the ground and create fewer pieces that meant more. And that's actually kind of where the whole philosophy came from was how do I create more with so much less? And that was from a financial perspective. I was like trying to make a whole dinner out of two beans and again the chef and then just in this whole catastrophic moment it was like how can you do as much as you possibly can with as little as you possibly have so let's take the next step when did things start to turn you have the president you are starting to rebuild a team you're starting to fundraise and realizing that it's the worst process ever yeah so actually fundraising was awful again we had kind of built a team prior to being able to really pay for it so that was precarious and that was like a lot of hand to mouth um when things really started to turn around was when we went on demand with our manufacturing so it was a year into relaunching direct to consumer and we were picking up steam with this kind of new kind of capsule concept and then we basically went on demand and that really freed up my cash flow. 
and it changed everything around. And we were then able to talk more about sustainability and how we could be sustainable. And people were like, oh, wow, she's really done the innovative thing again. Because it wasn't that innovative for me to go direct to consumer. There was a huge amount of direct to consumer brands, just that fashion brands weren't doing it. So it was like, I was the first in that space, but it wasn't that special. What was special was when we decided to figure out how from a manufacturing standpoint, you get product to somebody within seven to 10 business days from scratch. So I'm someone who is not a loyal fashionista. I didn't grow up following these designers or reading these magazines. How I first heard of you was with your social. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about how you approach social through an innovative lens. So to take a step back before I went direct to consumer, and this was kind of the impetus, it gave me the confidence to do it, was Instagram was somewhat nascent. And this was September of 2015. And I think Instagram launched in like 2012. So fashion was it was starting to become a thing and we were doing runway shows and we would see all these editors come through and this is when Eva Chen was still editor-in-chief at Lucky magazine before she went to Instagram and we would invite Eva with the hopes that actually forget what she would print in Lucky that she would sit in the front row and take a picture and post it to her Instagram and post it to her 500,000 followers and that we would gain followers as well from that moment. So it was really like way back when, so obvious now, but you know, then it was like, that was the strategy. And I have to be in Palo Alto and I was going to dinner at Sheryl Sandberg's house and they set up a tour for me at Instagram HQ and I met the head of marketing, got along with her like a house on fire. And I was saying to her how frustrated I was by this whole archaic model of, you know, someone sitting in the front row taking a picture, blah, blah. And she was like, well, why don't you do something about it? And I said, well, I've got an idea and it has to do with you and I'd love to partner with you. And she was like, we are so democratic. We don't partner with anybody. And I was like, okay, well, there's a few things I might need some help with. And she was like, okay, we'll try and figure it out. What ended up happening was we did this whole campaign around fashion week. And instead of doing a show, we asked 33 influencers from around the world to wear the new collection. Each of them had a single look. And it was everybody from Olivia Palermo, Lena Dunham, Meghan Markle, Giovanna Battaglia, all these women. And we had all these different ages. Linda Roden, you, probably, you guys probably know, she's so chic. And we had them all wear the collection and post it to their Instagram within a 12 hour period. And for every woman that did that, I gave a donation in that honor to Women for Women, the women's charity. This whole concept went viral and we gained, you know, like 20,000 followers within one day. It just paid off in spades. Like it wasn't like it was a free thing for us because we had to make clothes in certain sizes for people and we had to make donations in their honor and all that kind of stuff. The impact that we had and that we still see was just extraordinary. And actually I went to several very senior people within the fashion industry because Women's Wear Daily were gonna cover it and whatever. It's like, will you give a quote? And I won't say who it was that's standing out right now, but will you give a quote please and say how you think that this is the future of fashion, whatever. And they were like, no. And this is somebody that I knew so well and he was the CEO of a, a major fashion business. I wanna know who it is. I know, I, I'll never say. Okay, but wait, I'm not gonna press you on who it was, but as a person, do you let it go? Or now when you see that person, are you like, big mistake? I totally let it go. Ultimately, you have that reassurance in yourself that you did well. Like, what difference does it make to me for him to be like, oh, that was a mistake? I don't care. It's like an investor who passed on your investment. And then you want them to come back and be like, I wish I'd invested. That, yes, that happens to us on Twitter. <laughs> yes. And we really enjoy those It's our those favorite moments. days ever. So, yes. <laughs> 
I personally don't hold grudges. I don't care. The only thing that matters to me is in the end that I win. And that to me was a win. And I was like, it just goes to show that you are so outdated. It's just another thing that makes me realize that they are where they are and they're like dinosaurs. Talk about the focus on sustainability because I think a lot of people use that as a buzzword. I feel like every line is- It's a lot of greenwashing. Yeah. yeah. What does it actually mean for you guys? So for us, sustainability, we hit in so many different ways in the sense that we talk about buying better, wearing longer. We talk about buying less. And I remember when I first got into On Demand, we were talking to a major celebrities agent about striking a deal with them. She's very into sustainability. And he was like, it doesn't make sense to me that a brand that is a consumer brand is talking about buying less. And I was like, it might not make sense, but it's really about my personal kind of morals and values. So buy better, wear longer, uh, capsule wardrobe, so buying less, uh, but again, buying those key pieces that are really important to you and in your life. Um, and then uh, obviously in our manufacturing process, in our packaging process, um, we use dead stock fabrics where we possibly can. Uh, dead stock fabrics, just for anybody who doesn't really understand that, are fabrics that already exist in the marketplace, so they're not producing more for you. Uh, so it's again, eliminating waste. And really sustainability from the scratch or from the get-go always meant to me having a sustainable life. Because what I found when I was like at my peak breakdown was that the life that I was leading was completely unsustainable. I couldn't go at the pace of four collections per year with this team that I had from the cash flow perspective, trying to keep up with a personal life. It was all too much. And really now it's about how you have a sustainable life. Like it's really important to me to have that work-life balance. There's something about the fall that always makes me feel like I'm starting over again. It's that leftover feeling from going back to school. As a result, now that I'm not going back to school anymore, I take the time to clean my house out, thinking through redecorating, what's a new fresh change that I want reflected. And the easiest way to do that is to take your favorite pictures and go to FrameBridge. Just go to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo, or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. It's super easy. You can then preview your item online, choose any frame style you want, or ask advice from their amazing, talented designers and choose your favorite from their free recommendations. Instead of the $100 you can pay at a framing store, their prices are fantastic and start at $39 and all shipping is free. If you haven't used FrameBridge yet, follow the trend like us and get started today. Go to framebridge.com, use promo code SKIM, and you'll save an additional 15% off your first order. That's framebridge.com, promo code SKIM. So I remember when we first got to know you and it was just right around the capsule collection time, you kept using the word uniform. And even tonight you talked about, you know, how your clothes become your uniform. Kind of connect the dots for me with that and the idea of sustainability. Yeah. So um, I think that men kind of understand the idea of a uniform so easily and men have always been able to wear the same thing day in, day out and nobody even notices. I mean, my husband wears 
like the same suit all the time and he looks great in it and nobody's questioning what he's wearing. It's so unfair. Yeah, so yeah. there was that kind of like weird bias and I grew up in the UK. After 10 years in the Middle East, my family moved to the UK and I went to an all girls school and I wore a very cute little uniform. I loved that uniform and I was always thinking about how I could tweak it and you know, roll the skirt up and be a little sassy and like unbutton the, the top button under my tie and all that kind of stuff. And I was always encouraging others to do the same and we were always getting in trouble. And so I always think about how a uniform is something that allows you all to kind of look the same, but it's about the woman that's wearing it and how she puts her own personal touch on it. So it's no longer about walking into the room and being the loudest look. And I think this was something that I realized when I was fundraising was that fashion is seen as being so frivolous to so many people. And fashion as an industry employs a great number of people. It's something we all have to do every day is get dressed. But if we're being serious about what it is that we're doing every day, you can't wear like a pink polka dot feathery blouse or whatever, like you've got to look the part. And I think a uniform enables you, whatever that is for your body type and whatever, it enables you to go about your day without thinking about what you're wearing, because that I think is what the frivolousness feels like. I, we always talk about how President Obama, when he was in office, had that quote about how many decisions you have in a day to make and why he had his uniform picked out, that that was a decision that he wasn't going to make. Right. And I always think about that. And I'm like, well, I'm clearly not president, but there is a no. logic to it. Of course. And and actually you want to maximize so many other areas of your life. And maybe clothing is not the one that you want to think about all the time. So Anna Wintour, who is like, let's say the queen of the fashion industry, she's the same way. She often wears the same shoes. You see, she has like several pairs of shoes that she wears, similar types and shapes of dresses, always similar jewelry. Her hair has been the same for years. She orders the same thing for breakfast and for lunch. It just takes those decisions that feel a little bit, I don't want to use the word, I don't want to overuse the word frivolous, but things that you don't need to think about all the time. And um, it allows you to think about the bigger picture things. So you get your head out of here and you're like looking above a little I bit. I think there's, as you mentioned, there's inevitably a gender bias in that. And yeah. we talk about this with a lot of other female founders all the time when we are privileged enough to have a speaking engagement or travel to go to an event or conference. You're doing the preparation that you have to do and you're putting all that focus and then inevitably women spend more time thinking about what am I going to wear to this? And it becomes this thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated hearing what you say. You know, we once, um, we actually once interviewed Ariana Huffington for this show and she, Love her. she's hilarious. Yeah. And she said she wears the same black dress to all of her black tie functions. And now she's going to much nicer functions than we are. But she, she was saying, she's like, no one knows, no one cares. And then I don't have to think about it. And there's this extra time baked into, especially women in leadership's day to day, where they actually do need to think about how they're presenting themselves um, from an aesthetic perspective. And so I'm curious how you talk about your commitment to female empowerment and to women in business how the thought around the uniform contributed to that. Because I think that actually the more of us that band together and agree on this, that are women of influence, let's say, I mean, you know, you two have great influence. Ariana has enormous influence. There are several very high profile women in the world that believe in this. What we're talking about, like, you know, you're going to go speak at a conference. It's it's really thinking about how you're going to be portrayed. 
And men don't have to think about that. First of all, we've got to think about hair and makeup as well. I mean, that's like, that's also such a time suck in thinking about like, do I wear jewelry? Do I not wear jewelry? Is that part of my look? Is it not? All of those things that are a little bit unfair in my mind. And I think that as empowered women, we can empower women to think less about those things by being very vocal about the fact that as long as you have the pieces that support you really well in your life, you don't need more. I want to talk about on the subject of women empowering women, mm. the partnerships that you've done. Mm-hmm. I see Sarah Flint involved in the pop up, yep. and also obviously the line that you launched with Megan. Yep. Talk a little bit about your view on partnerships, and I think in an industry where you don't often see a lot of women supporting women, you've done that very well. Thank you. Partnerships, I think, are extremely important. And I think ultimately it's about people who like each other really coming together and doing fun stuff. You know that it can be quite lonely. You're lucky you two have each other. I'm lucky I have a really great team of people. Every single person that works for me, I really, really love and enjoy, including this wonderful store staff tonight. Uh, They're very nice. Yeah, they are very nice. But I think that partnerships are a way to tell your message. So the thing that we did uh, with the Duchess of Sussex was brilliant in the sense that it really hammered home who we are from a capsule wardrobe perspective and also from the women's empowerment perspective. I mean, SmartWorks couldn't be more like-minded and aligned with our mission of, you know, women working and, you know, going about their day-to-day jobs and, and empowering them to do that with the clothes that they wear. Sarah Flint, I don't do shoes, love her shoes. She's a great girl. And, you know, when she was going direct to consumer and quitting wholesale, she came to me and asked me for advice. And we've always been so open towards one another and sharing resources and all that kind of stuff, however we possibly can. And I think that that is the only way to move forward. The world is in a very abundant place. And the more that you share with each other, the better that your life is. Just because someone else's star is shining, it doesn't mean that yours is dimming. What would make you say yes to a partnership versus given? Uh, it has to be aligned with our values. I mean, we have lots and lots of people approach us and they want to do it maybe for a press reason or the wrong reasons, basically. And so we just say it doesn't make sense for us and um, you don't have the same values as us. We won't say it as bluntly as that. We'll just say, no, thank you. We don't like your values. Have yeah, a nice day. Like, you know, or there's plenty Next. of brands who, aren't, who are not sustainable, who want to work in a sustainable place and they want to get that press based on you know, a collaboration with us. And you know, we see through that. What do you want the brand to stand for down the road? You've talked about not seeing yourself as a fashion brand. What do you hope that your name stands for? It's really about a concept. I would like to say a lifestyle brand that empowers women to live the best life that they want to do. Whatever it is that they are dreaming of doing, that we help them get there on a day-to-day level. And, you know, that starts with clothes. But I think that uh, in time, we'd like to get into other categories that include accessories and, you know, other facets of health, wellness, all that kind of stuff. I'm super into all of that. You've prided yourself on kind of thinking ahead of where the fashion industry is going. So what's next? What are you going to disrupt next? It's funny because we're putting together all of our plans. I'm thinking about it now. Um, You can release them here. (laughs) I think the pop-ups have been incredible for us. I think it's, it's an amazing way of kind of helping to... Uh, consolidate our community. It's really important, the retail aspect. And 
I wanted to say when you were asking what's your plan for the future is that we're a sustainable women's lifestyle brand because I think sustainability is the future. I think that there's so much that people talk about, but we really want to do it every possible way that we can. I think that retail in its current format is completely dead. I think that we'll see all department stores in time go away. And I think that this kind of experiential retail buzzword is boring, but what we're going to see come out of that, I think will be very, very interesting down the line. And I think the partnerships are really the way forward. I think it's about strong people coming together and creating change with purpose at the core. If you were an executive of a department store today, what would you be doing? I'd be thinking about joining a, a, a mono brand. I'd be thinking about how I could work on, you know, developing a brand that is probably quite nascent. Time for our favorite segment. Yes, I'm very excited. Lightning okay. round. Lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. We ask a question, you answer quickly. Okay. It's very okay. hard. <laughs> First job. As the name suggests. <laughs> First job. Apprentice at a tailoring atelier. Worst job. Same job. <laughs> Last book you read. I just reread The Alchemist. Oh. Did you introduce Harry and Meghan? No comment. <laughs> okay. What was the last thing that you watched on Netflix? Uh, Madam Secretary. Ooh. I like that. It's the best. It's really good. I love Taylioni. She's great. What is your biggest vice? Um, I would probably say dark chocolate. Mm. I mean, I've pretty much given up sugar, but I like dark chocolate and cheese. <laughs> love cheese. Does Megan skim? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that, that one I don't know the answer to. <laughs> um, when's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Um, probably... Not that long ago when I was thinking about my contribution to the business. Leave it at that. How do people know when you're stressed? I'm a little bit short-tempered, a little bit short on text, or I don't respond. <laughs> what drives you? Uh, purpose and passion for change. Very shameless plug. Misha Nunu, of course. <laughs> oh, wait, I've got one last question. Okay. Did you ever think of naming it something else? Yeah, but I actually did. But... I, I didn't want to call it my name because I thought about, you know, the actual uh, repercussions of that when you sell the business. But everybody was like, it's such an absurd name. Where are you going right. to find something better? <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, point. <laughs> right. I love it. Well, Misha, we have loved talking to you. We are so happy for you in this beautiful pop-up uh, with you. this great audience. Thank you guys so much. Thank, Thank you. you guys. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.